KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno. Stand by for Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. I was so glad to see so many KPFA listeners at the Crafts Fair this last weekend. It's it's quite an ego trip. I, <laughs> we were all talking at once. I don't think we made very much sense, but it was lovely to see so many of you there. Uh, jingle bells. Uh, oh, first of all today, listen, first of all, I want to mention... An interesting article in the current New Yorker. Just give you a heads up. It's called Holy Smoke. And I left the damn thing on the bus today. I don't know. I think I'm still worn out from two days of nonstop talking. I meant to read you some bits from this piece, Holy Smoke. It's all about the Christian Crusades. It's all about, you know, that medieval madness. You remember the uh, Christians against the Muslims. Back uh, in the Middle Ages, that was basically so the Pope could expand his power. Well, everybody involved was uh, expanding their power. Well, they were after something, loot or women or a free ticket to salvation. You know the story. But the article is so amazingly full of parallels and ironies, you know. Uh, it's uh, an echo of this horror being suffered in Iraq and throughout the Middle East today. All the same ego trips and the same psychological motives and the same religious pathology and theocratic nonsense and messianic militarism and... Who said? I said. Yes, somebody said. History doesn't repeat itself. It's just the people who do over and over the same human story. Only this time around, they have ever more destructive weapons, you know, the kind that can kill not just a single generation, but future generations, destroy genetic codes, devastate the land, the earth herself, for millennia to come. Anyway, that article is Holy Smoke in the New Yorker. And I want to remind everyone about a film documentary uh, it opened December the 10th in San Francisco at Landmark Embarcadero. It's called WMD, or Weapons of Mass Deception. Deception, that's it. The uh, journalist Danny Schechter, blessed Danny Schechter, Danny Schechter, the news dissector, he exposes the ways that mainstream media 
sold this Iraq war to um, the audience in the United States, you know. Propaganda as a weapon of mass deception. I like weapon of mass destruction as well. PC is for patriotic correctness. CP is for corporate power. Oh, yes, the battle for men's minds. I, I like to say that the battle for men's minds is often fought on the field of women's bodies. Yes, women and children last. Yes, always. It's the civilians who get slaughtered. This brings me to the children, the holiday season. I want to talk about children's books today. I don't want to get into uh, the, what is it, the bloody world situation, because it's a bottom's pit. Yes, I was looking through my collections of children's books. This is the time of year I love to get out the... Uh, the memory gems, childhood is the kingdom, where nobody dies, the holiday season, the time of year when things get real. I haven't been a child for half a century, but uh, I am not one of those who forgets. In childhood, we are loved unconditionally, if we're lucky. In childhood, fantasy is more powerful than reality. Every betrayal is a matter of life and death, you remember. At this time of year, I go to the bookstores, and I find those books that shaped my mind and heart. Uh, I've noticed just recently I found the most wonderful collection of Victorian illustrators, and I realized that because I didn't have a television set till my mid-twenties, that the images that imprinted my little mind heart are the uh, visual images of those Victorian illustrators. I think my favorite is Arthur Rackham. I found a beautiful book in a museum bookstore the other day. Uh, it's just huge passages from Shakespeare, but the uh, pictures in it are all the Victorian fairies. Yes, the great um, illustrators again. I have nothing against videos and audio books. Um, I got one, I got uh, Jane Austen's Persuasion, the book and the video, to give to a young woman I know. I guess that's the way it's being done, you know, it's like little two volumes. I suppose most children start with the video, but we'll do the best we can, yes. It's just, I believe that words... Words stay warmer longer if we hear them and then remember them coming from the people we love. Uh, when I was a young mother back in the early 60s, I practiced what I called breast reading. Breast reading associates uh, the feeding, the breast feeding, with songs and stories so that the children learn that the word is as nourishing and sustaining as their food. Now, this sensual approach gives words an emotional power that uh, can't possibly be instilled later on, you know, when words and language are associated with school, with the written text. 
Oh, and with spelling, ooh, ooh. It is the human voice that brings the words to life. Of course, the poets have always known that. Uh, the book that I picked this year for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, uh, the book that I picked this year is The Wizard of Oz. Um, I don't know why that, uh, why the, the mythos of Oz is so very American, but it is, it is, it is. The author, Frank, L. Frank Baum, uh, he, he told us in several essays that he was looking for a modern myth. He wanted to counteract all the grim, <laughs> the grim fairy tales, Grimm's fairy tales included, that the children were subjected to uh, the dark, cannibalistic stories, uh, the frightening stories. Um, some people find Oz a little frightening, but uh, I think that Oz does create a new myth, and it's certainly a memory gem, uh, especially for writers like... Uh, Oh, Gore Vidal, Ray Bradbury, John Updike, they've all written uh, wonderful essays on the subject of The Wizard of Oz. Even Mark Twain liked it. Uh, critics tend to compare Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland with Dorothy in the Emerald City. Most say that Alice is cerebral and Dorothy is visceral, but I think that's a yes and a no. The Oz books have been called a parable of the migrant condition. The wizard himself has been called uh, the ultimate American entrepreneur, the con man par excellence, yes, selling snake oil, yes. Hollywood writers told us that uh, the book, the movie, is about metamorphosis, uh, change, growth. Political pundits tell us that the land of Oz is ruled in a mock medieval manner, often with female rulers, yes, benevolent or tyrannical, as the case may be. I think Oz is more wishful thinking than a utopian dream, but I like the critics who insist on a parable. They tell us that the scarecrow represents the American farmer and the tin woodman, the factory worker, and anyway, yes, Skip Yarborough has all this material about uh the Wizard of Oz, and uh, let's call it the working class. Uh, the political analysis, the um, left-wing analysis, I'll leave for another time. There's pages and pages of it. Uh, what I remember most was little incidents. Uh, the great Gail Sondergaard was first cast as the Wicked Witch. You remember the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz in the movie? But she turned out to be too beautiful, too glamorous. They were after a hideous witch. Um, uh, so they finally uh, fired Gail Sondergaard, uh, perhaps because <laughs> she, was a, <laughs> she was blacklisted as a red. They used Margaret Hamilton, the uh, uh, screamy, scary witch. Uh, I find it fascinating that Frank Baum's mother-in-law was the prominent feminist Matilda Jocelyn Gage. His work is full of female fantasy, even some female reality. 
Auntie M comes to mind. Uh, Baum was introduced by his mother-in-law, Matilda Gage, uh, to American theosophy. That was full of lots of uh, spiritualism, kind of like today's New Age stuff, you know. Uh, <laughs> a lot of Buddhist and Hindu beliefs, Eastern wisdom. It seems that he sensibly rejected the darker or devil side of Christianity. You know, the side that was used to frighten children to think they would go to hell. Uh, Baum wrote, quote, God is nature and nature God. Seems he had some pagan good sense. Uh, <laughs> let me read you a little uh, snippet of what Gore Vidal said about this book about uh, the land of Oz. He said the books were a major element in his growing up. Quote, like most Americans my age with access to books, I spent a good deal of my youth in Baum's Land of Oz. I have a precise tactile memory of the first Oz book that came into my hands, the original 1910 edition of the Emerald City of Oz. I still remember the look and the feel of those dark blue covers, the evocative smell of dust and old ink. I also remember that I could not stop reading and rereading the book. But reading is not the right word. In some mysterious way, I was translating myself to Oz, a place which I was to inhabit for many years. With the Emerald City, I became addicted to reading. I was thinking the other day how it is that those of us without television did learn to lift ourselves up into the the world of the books we were reading. Uh, yes, we had to... Uh, Use those early illustrations. They were our movies. I remember pictures that went along with Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, perhaps my quintessential fairy tale. Uh, let me read you a little bit more here about Gore Vidal. Um, let's see. He wrote an essay both in the 50s and in 77. 77 is essays on Oz got into the New York Review of Books. In that one, he sees Baum as a protester against the violence of the rising American empire and, quote, the Iron Puritan Order, unquote. Now, uh, it is true that there was an undercurrent of dissidence in the Oz books, and there's a lot of information here I'm reading up on, it seems to have antagonized some librarians and critics. Uh, let's see, the director of the Detroit Library System back in 1957 pronounced the Oz books guilty of negativism and, quote, a cowardly approach to life. <laughs> yes, sounds like my favorite, favorite early children's book, Ferdinand the Bull, yes, wouldn't fight. Um, L. Frank Baum, in his introduction to The Wizard, strikes a challenging note. He deplores, yes, the horrible and blood-curdling incidents contained in the old-time fairy tale. He wants his readers to uh, get, quote, a modernized fairy tale in which wonderment and joy are retained and the heartaches and nightmares are left out. 
Hmm? Actually, let's see, Baum also professed an animistic vision. Uh, He writes, here's what he writes, Every bit of wood, every drop of liquid, every grain of sand or portion of rock has its myriads of inhabitants. These invisible and vapory beings are known as elementals. They are soulless but immortal, frequently possessed of extraordinary intelligence, and again, remarkably stupid. (laughs) End of the quote from L. Frank Baum. That sounds very much like the Celtic world of the fairies and the, let's just call them, uh, supernaturals or... I don't know, Eddie. Is that it? That's it. There we go. Here we go. I think we're on again. I'll keep going on the chance that I'm on the air, but we're having some little tech goodies here. Yes, Madame Blavatsky. Oh, I love her. Yes. Founder of the Theosophical Society in her book, Isis Unveiled, wrote about these uh, elementals. She wrote that the creatures evolved in the four kingdoms of Earth, air, fire, and water. They were called by the Kabbalists gnomes, sylphs, salamanders, and undines. I love it that Frank Baum spelled his gnomes without a G. He just put it down as N-O-M-E-S. He thought it was too difficult for children to spell. Anyway, Blavatsky goes on to say this giddying, virtually bacterial, multitudinous came to characterize Oz. (laughs) The wizard itself actually presents an uncluttered cosmogony drawn in blight blunt tints. Uh, Actually, some people believe that Oz is about the evils of capitalism. Uh, The rewards of capitalism proved fickle for Baum himself. Seems he struggled desperately all his life. He was very sick. And uh, trying to make ends meet was hard for him, but uh, he blundered through. He tried to make silent movies early in the 20th century. These were mostly failures. And, of course, um, he did not benefit from (laughs) Hollywood and what Judy Garland did, yes. Uh, Enemies of socialism find in the Emerald City uh, his much-quoted passage... uh, There were no poor people, because there was no such thing as money, and all property of every sort belonged to the ruler. The people were her children, and she, Princess Ozma, cared for them. Each person was given freely by his neighbors whatever he required for his use. 
which is as much as anyone may reasonably desire. <laughs> yes, it is definitely a wish fulfillment. The proletariat does not rule in Oz. Rather, it is ruled in this mock medieval manner by benevolent tyrants. Yes, uh, that once again uh, refers to Matilda Gage's militant uh, suffragism. Baum's rulers have a parental absolutism. Glenda, you remember Glenda the Good Witch. Uh, she is the ideal, ever-resourceful mother. The wizard is a typically bumbling father, a kind of Oz sitcom, as Baum first conceived it. Baum supported the populist William Jennings Bryant in 1896 and 1900, and the literature of the late 19th century abounds in literary utopias, but Oz is too unearthly to carry much political punch. Uh, yes, I would say it is constructed not of revolutionary intent, but of wishful thinking. Uh, Mrs. Gage, uh, Maud's mother, Maud was Baum's wife, moved in with the couple. <laughs> they did not get along very well, Baum and his mother-in-law, but he should be everlastingly grateful to the old lady for one contribution. Mrs. Gage listened to his stories and ordered, You go out and have those published. He laughed at the idea, but his wife said firmly, Mother is nearly always right about everything. Nagged by the two women, Baum sent out a collection of stories suggested by the Mother Goose Rhymes, published in 1897 under the title Mother Goose in Prose. The illustrator was an unknown young artist named... Maxfield Parrish. This was a first for both of them. The book did uh, sufficiently well for the publishers to ask for another. So Baum wrote the Father Goose sequel. Then came the miraculous success of the wizard. Baum was possessed by his fantasies. He wandered around in a trance at times. His best friends could speak to him and he wouldn't recognize them. His characters were intensely real to him. Once, when he had not written for several weeks, his wife asked him, What was the matter? My characters won't do what I want them to, he said irritably. A few days later, he was back at work. Maud asked him, his wife, asked him how he had solved his problem. Her husband explained, I let them do what they want to do. <laughs> he was an ardent naturalist. He never hunted feeling like the tin woodman that killing animals was cruel. Ozma, the ruler of Oz, says firmly, no one has the right to kill any living creature, however evil they may be, or to hurt them, or make them unhappy. <laughs> Baum loved to recount some matter-of-fact event and then embroider it with increasingly grotesque details while maintaining a perfectly serious attitude. The game was to see how far he could go before his listeners realized he was joking. He could fool even his own family. Once he was telling his serious-minded mother a fantastic tale, which deceived her for a long time until she finally caught on and said, Frank, you are telling a story. Her son replied, Well, mother, as you know, in St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, he said, All men are liars. 
his bewildered mother. His bewildered mother said, I don't recall that. She got her Bible and began searching until she suddenly realized she had been tricked again. <laughs> you can fool most of the people most of the time. Anyway, I think, I wish I had time to read you more and more of the opinions about this book, but I, I'm a little bit in rebellion against the Harry Potter books this year, and I thought Oz might be a way to slip back. Uh, uh, let's see, here is the conclusion of one critic. He says, Baum is a small and inconsequential flower, blooming in the shade of Shakespeare. I suppose I will be reviled for mentioning them in the same paragraph. But both lived inside their heads with a mind gone wild with wanting, wishing, hoping, shaping, dreaming. There, if no other place, they touch fingertips, <laughs> he goes on to say. The fight between dreamers and fact-finders will continue... I've been, uh, what is it, uh, wearied lately by the number of books that are aimed at, uh, oh, what is it, age groups, you know, they're turning literature into mathematics, uh, numbers, school, uh, everything is age relevant, um, who can say which is which, which is the dream and which is the fact? This critic goes on to say that Shakespeare invented Freud. Hell, Shakespeare invented everything. In a book where, in a world where books are machine made, yes, for age groups, when books pass through dry parchment analysts' hands before being pill fed to kids, balm is needed. I have another note here that I wish I had time to tell you what the Texas book uh, industry is doing to our textbooks across the nation. More textbooks are sold in Texas than in any other state. So they usually have um, the first editorial look. And uh, <laughs> thing, things are pretty dreadful. Um, when our cities die, in their present form at least, when we head out into Eden again, which we must and will, L. Frank Baum will be waiting for us. And if the road we take is not yellow brick, why, damn it, we can imagine that it is, even as we imagine our wives beautiful and our husbands wise and our children kind until, until such day as they echo that dream. I have a list of women's books I'll save till next time. Uh, I remember being uh, the scarecrow on stage back when I was 13 years old when I got my brains I was to prove that I was clever by reciting the alphabet backwards. Talk about numbers. I wasn't wise, just clever. <laughs> Z-Y-X-W-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-N-M-L-K-D-I-H-G-F-E-D-C-B-A. I can still do it. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow.
Guns and Butter examines the hidden structure of rule in America, exposing the real dynamics of the events of 9-11, the role of the powerful few in state terror, and the drive for permanent war. Tune in to Guns and Butter every Wednesday at 2 p.m. right here on KPFA. What's that sound? Everybody look what's going Educación. Housing rights. Derecho de mujeres. Immigrant rights. Música latina. Latino and Latina poetry. ¿Te interesa? If this interests you, tune in to 94.1 KPFA with La Raza Chronicles on Tuesday nights at 7. Ponte en sintonía a 94.1 KPFA para escuchar Crónicas de la Raza cada martes a las 7 de la noche. Where we'll discuss issues affecting the Latino community of the Bay Area and the Central Valley. Radio for you. Donde les traemos temas que afectan nuestras comunidades latinas de la área de la Bahía y del Valle Central. Radio para nuestra comunidad. La Raza Chronicles on Tuesday nights at 7 at 94.1 KPFA. Crónicas de la Raza los martes a las 7 de la noche en 94.1 KPFA. Escucha. And you're tuned to 94.1 FM KPFA in Berkeley, also 88.1 FM KFCF in Fresno, and Radio X in Seattle. Stay tuned for Hard Knock Radio. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? <laughs> 